Monday morning, humans. Hello, humans. So good to hear from you. Well, I'm not hearing from you. You're hearing from me. This is me, Ellie Krug, with Ellie 2.0 Radio. Happy Monday. I hope it's a good day for you. I hope it's going to be a good week. Welcome back to my show and newly expanded show, I might add. We did our first expanded one full hour show last week. I hope you liked it, although I didn't hear from anyone, but um, that's okay. If you ever want to contact me, you can do it at um, a couple of different emails. One is le2.0radio, that's le2.0radio at gmail.com, or you can even email me at lejkrug at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. We have a great show. I have a phenomenal interview with a woman who started a legal nonprofit protecting kids in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. She began it with a vision and, and, and with a beg letter, and uh, that was in 2005 and has gone forward to create an organization that has 12 people and a $750,000 budget. Yeah, that's what idealists do. That's what idealists do when they get going. So you'll hear that interview in a little bit. But before we go there, I want to, in my A segment, always talk about an idealist who in the past has done some work. And, um, and uh, the theme for this show is about uh, standing up or speaking up for people who don't, who don't have voices of their own. And so what I want to do is um, talk about a man named uh, Ralph Lazo, L-A-Z-O, um, who uh, has quite a story. Now, um, for attribution purposes, uh, some of this material is coming from the Milken Center based in Kansas. They have a thing called the Unsung Heroes Project, and so I want to give them credit. So, um, uh, you know, uh, let's talk about this. Um, it's about a dark chapter in our country's past. It goes back to World War II. Um, and, and the decision to intern more than 100,000 people of Japanese ancestry um, in internment camps in the western United States. And the majority of those people that were interned were, in fact, United States citizens, even though they were of Japanese ancestry. Um, and that past, that dark past in World War II, was not unlike the internment centers that we have going on right now in the United States that are springing up as I speak um, for parents and children, and not necessarily are they together anymore, um, who are immigrants coming to this country. So, going back to our hero, Ralph Lazo. So before the war, um, Ralph lived in um, the Los Angeles racially diverse neighborhood, a Temple Street neighborhood. Ralph um, was Mexican-American. He had olive colored skin um, that was uh, of lighter complexion. He had suffered some bad luck growing up. His mother died when he was younger and his father was on the road often as a truck driver. And because Ralph was alone, he built an extended family of friends, um, many of whom were Japanese. And often Ralph was a dinner guest um, in their homes. You know, and um, many of us have in our lives that, you know, that one kid who always keeps showing up, who um, you, you automatically start setting a place for at the table. Even though they're not your own kid, um, you want them to be part of your family. So when, um, you know, we had Pearl Harbor in December of 1941, and in early 1942, the United States government issued an internment order um, that resulted in... Um, persons of Japanese ancestry being displaced from the West Coast. The fear was that those folks on the West Coast would somehow aid Japan in invading the United States. And so the federal government ordered uh, more than 100,000 people of Japanese ancestry to leave their homes and to shutter their businesses. Many of these people lost their homes. They lost physical possessions. They lost their businesses because they were forcibly relocated to the interior of California. And, um, and as Ralph would later say when he heard about that order, now remember, he is just a teenager. And when he heard about the order displacing the Japanese, his Japanese friends, he said, quote, internment was immoral. It was wrong, and I couldn't accept it, unquote. 
So the displacement process began in the spring of 1942, with many of Ralph's friends being sent to the Manzanar internment camp in Owens Valley, in the Owens Valley of California. Now those camps, I mean, we're not talking summer camps, okay? We are talking camps with barbed wire fences and armed guards. Very austere with primitive restroom facilities, without insulation in the buildings, um, without um, air conditioning in the summer. And what does Ralph do when his friends start leaving for uh, Manzanar? He goes along with them. Let me say that again. Ralph, who's uh, Latino, um, with no... Um, uh, a requirement that he leave Los Angeles, goes with his Japanese friends to Manzanar, and he voluntarily submits to internment. Now, he told his father that he was going away for summer camp. Um, eventually, he came clean with his father, <clears throat> who unbelievably um, consented to Ralph staying at Manzanar. Um, and because... Uh, because Ralph was a Latino with very light olive skin, he blended in. You know the old saying, they all look alike. I'm sorry, I'm being facetious here. But Ralph took advantage of this. And in the process, he became the only known non-spouse, non-Japanese American who ever voluntarily consented to internment. He stayed at Manzanar for two years. Now think about that. He gave up his life to support his Japanese friends for two years. During those two years, he finished high school. Um, even though he graduated very low in the class, he was elected the class president, and he was also a cheerleader. He helped raise their spirits by planting trees, by planting parties, and by firing up crowds at sporting events. In August of 1944, um, as Ralph was turning of age, he was drafted into the Army. And in an irony of all ironies, he ended up serving in the South Pacific, fighting America's real enemies, the, real, the, the Japanese who were trying to attack our country. And not only did Ralph do that, but he, he engaged in combat and was awarded the Bronze Star for bravery. But as the Milken, as the Milken Center notes, no one ever gave Ralph Lazo a medal for standing up for his beliefs or for standing up for the people who did not have voices. But Ralph's idealism didn't end um, with the war's end. You know, after returning from the Pacific, um, he went back to Los Angeles, he went to college, um, he ended up um, teaching uh, students, he mentored to disabled students, and then he encouraged um, uh, Latinos to attend college and to vote. Um, he, his biography says that he was a quiet and modest man, um, but um, when there was a push for reparations for Japanese Americans interned during the war, he was involved in that push, and he helped raise money for the class action lawsuit to win those reparations. Um, as you may know, President Reagan, in uh, 1988, signed into law um, a, a statute uh, giving each of the remaining internees, those that had survived, $20,000, which, if you ask me, is not a whole lot of money for what they went through. And he also, President Reagan, also offered an apology on behalf of the U.S. government and at that time stated that internment was based on race prejudice, war historia, and a failure of political leadership. Fast forward to 20, 2018. Um, we could say some of those elements are present in our society right now. Ralph Lazo, um, he was also the subject of a movie, a short film uh, titled Stand Up for Justice, the Ralph Lazo story. Um, and he has a Wikipedia page uh, to, um, to my happiness. You know, Ralph was, I mean, extraordinary. He really was. He understood what it meant to be there for people who did not have voices. He understood what it meant to put himself out and to take great risk. I mean, my goodness, did he have any idea of how it would end for him when he got on the bus along with his Japanese friends and went to Mazinar? I'm sure he didn't. 
And, you know, um, that's really what idealists do. They have a belief, they stand up for their beliefs, and they just go forward. Many times it's acting on only on your gut, only on what it is that your gut is telling you about what's right or wrong. It's the examples of people like Ralph Lazo that we need in our world. It is those stories that I'm trying to highlight with this show because when we hear about these unsung heroes, what a great name for a project, when we hear about these folks, um, it helps to give us resolve. It helps us also to focus on what we need to do and helps us to understand the need to follow our guts, to follow our instincts about what's right or what's wrong. I know right now, listening to me, there are idealists, and there are would-be idealists, people who are willing, if only they had the bravery and the conviction of people like Ralph Lazo. You can do this. You can. It's not easy. But the rewards are immense because we need to be there for other humans. You've been listening to me, Ellie Krug, on Ellie 2.0 Radio, where we talk about idealism. I call myself a practical idealist. I hope you are enjoying this show. If you're enjoying it, visit my website at elliekrug.com. I'd love for you to come visit. Sign up for my newsletter, The Ripple. You can find uh, the sign-up sheet on the website. When we come back, we'll talk to Jenny Schultz from Kids First. Thank you. Branding Electrolysis on Grand Avenue in St. Paul has been a leader in permanent hair removal for people of all skin types and backgrounds for over 30 years, celebrating diversity and priding themselves on finding the right treatment plan for each client's individual needs, regardless of race or gender. Services include electrolysis, body waxing, facials, microneedling, and permanent makeup. Book your 60-minute complimentary consultation, including a 15-minute treatment today, for beautiful, lasting results. Visit BrendingElectrolysis.com. Hi, this is Ken Hagland, host of the Minnesota Hospice and Healthcare Show, inviting you to listen to our new show airing on Saturdays from noon to one. On my next show, I will be talking with attorney Kalen Bedker about several topics from trusts to medical assistance and why you need to be aware of these legal concepts and how important they are in planning for elder care issues and end-of-life health care. Please join us this Saturday from noon to one for the new Minnesota Hospice and Healthcare Show. Learn more about us at minnesotahospice.com. At Pride Institute, being LGBTQ plus is the norm, not the exception. Their highly trained and skilled staff understand your issues and will help you live a happy, healthy life as a proud LGBTQ plus person. They offer you hope to overcome your addiction and live the life you want. Their treatment programs are designed to assist you in developing the knowledge, skills, and attitudes for long-term recovery. Therapy groups include health education, LGBTQ issues, HIV and chronic illness, trauma, grief and loss, transgender support, nicotine recovery, education, and sexual health. Pride Institute offers a residential treatment program, a partial hospitalization program that includes day programming with lodging, and an intensive outpatient program. If you or someone in your life can benefit from guidance and coping skills, life balance, and other tools necessary for long-term recovery, check them out at pride-institute.com or call 800-547-7433 now. Hello, this is Ellen Krug from Hidden Edges Radio. When I'm not on the radio, I'm standing in front of audiences training about diversity and inclusion and on how to be welcoming to others who are different from us. More than ever, employers and organizations need professional diversity and inclusion training. I can offer that training through my company, Human Inspiration Works, LLC. I'd love to make your workplace or organization more welcoming. For more information, go to humaninspirationworks.com. Thank you. Tap, taste, and treasure at Vinaigrette, where we have some warm seasonal recipes all ready to create dynamite meals. Our fig balsamic vinegar pairs perfectly with roasted Brussels sprouts or baked brie. And sweet potatoes are always a winner, but never more than when they're roasted with a drizzle of vinaigrette cinnamon or orange-fused extra virgin olive oil on top. Come in today for more custom-crafted food and cocktail recipes at Vinaigrette, 50th and Xerxes in Minneapolis, and 287 Water Street in downtown Excelsior. Online at vinaigrettemn.com. And 
We're back on LE 2.0 Radio. Hello again. Hello, hello. Uh, that was a great story about Ralph, Ralph Lazo, and oh my goodness, I will be that will be resonating with me for a long time, and I hopefully resonate with you. And you know what Ralph did, and that's the theme of this show is that he's he spoke up for people who didn't have voices, and 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 he stood up for people who didn't. And now I am thrilled to have on the line with me somebody else who has spoken up for people who don't have voices. Jenny Schultz is the executive director of Kids First Law Center based in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, but with offices in Iowa City and Des Moines. Jenny, welcome to LE 2.0 Radio. How are you? <laughs> Hi, thanks, Ellie. Good to be here. I'm well. Oh, I'm thrilled to have you on this show. And um, audience members may not know that I'm originally from Cedar Rapids and practice law there. And, um, and Jenny, I was there when you founded uh, Kids First, and we're going to get into that in a second. And, and I think you know, I've told you this, that I've been following you ever since I left Cedar Rapids in 2010, from afar, watching and what you've been doing. And supporting us, thank you. <laughs> yes, and supporting you and watching what you do. So Jenny, um, you're, you're uh, an Iowa attorney, right? Correct. Okay, and you're the executive director of Kids First Law Center. Can you tell us what Kids First Law Center is and uh, what what work they do? Kids First is a children's nonprofit, and our mission is to give children a voice in custody, divorce, and other conflicts. So our work began with legal representation for kids and. That's in really high-conflict family law cases. So these are cases where parents are constantly fighting in front of the kids, frequent verbal fights. Often the fights turn physical. There's been police intervention oftentimes. There's constant litigation. Uh, we've been appointed in many cases where the parents separated when the kids were infants, but they're still in court fighting about custody 10 years later. So we're appointed as the children's advocate and our job is to try to um, understand the situation from the child's perspective and then be their voice in the court process. So that's our main um, bread and butter, if you will. Uh, but over time, we've expanded and, and we've added four other projects. So we also do educational workshops for kids whose parents are getting a divorce uh, because we realized that when we were representing children of high-conflict divorce. There were all these other kids whose parents were getting a divorce, which can be a really traumatic event in a child's life, and no one was there to explain it or walk them through it who was neutral and who understood the process, because for the parents, it's also new. So we do workshops for hundreds of kids every year. That's, that and is then, unbelievable. That is just such a great idea. I mean, just way to use your imagination and to understand how kids are so caught up in the system that, I mean, I know that they're all often overwhelmed. Go on. Tell us about your other projects. Okay. Uh, we also do neutral exchanges for parents who really can't exchange their kids without a fight. So... One parent comes to one side of the building, one comes to the other, and then we walk the kids through the building so they can experience just a friendly, peaceful process when they go back and forth. Uh, we also have a therapist on staff and have for years now, and she does joint parenting sessions. So any separated parents can come here and work on their co-parenting, their communication, making things smoother for kids across households. And that's for families who are in court or aren't in court, high conflict, low conflict. It, it doesn't matter. That's, that's open to anybody, and those sessions are free. So those are, the, those are the projects we do for families. And then just starting last October, we expanded to do work in the schools. We've really been focused up until this point on resolving conflict in families, but so much conflict is happening for kids with their peers and in the school setting that we wanted to be there too. So we piloted a project in a middle school that had the lowest number of students but the highest number of disciplinary referrals, and our attorney was stationed at the school full-time just resolving conflicts between kids and sometimes conflicts between kids and, and teachers. And uh, that was really cool, and we're going to be um, hopefully expanding that project this coming year. So when you say you had a, okay, so, well, 
I don't know where to start. So when you say you had an attorney stationed at a school, I assume it's for the attorney to act as a mediator. Yes? Right. Okay. Not, I mean, they're not like representing the kids against the school or anything right. like that or another, <laughs> right. or another kid. I don't think the school would have been no, on board with that. they wouldn't have. <laughs> and what are your metrics from that project? I mean, how, with the school-based um, conflict resolution um, and maybe perhaps some restorative justice principles involved, what, uh, what kind of outcomes are you getting? It is a restorative justice project, actually. So um, we meet with, with kids individually and then bring them together. And we, in the circles, we call them circles when we have meetings with the kids, 93% uh, of those resolved with an agreement this year. And uh, we're thrilled with that. So the other metric that we have is the number of suspensions. So suspensions this year at that middle school decreased by 30%. Oh, my God. And uh, that's huge. And the principal said to me, you know, the work that your attorney did is a big part of that. So um, part of our belief is that if you can help kids with conflict resolution skills and, and learning how to empathize and understand the other person's perspective, then they're less likely to have those conflicts grow and and keep them out of the classroom where they can be learning. And Jenny, because I know we've got very smart listeners, some people are, are wondering, what is um, restorative justice? Just so we get past that, can you define that for our listeners, please? Yes, yeah, it's a, it's a philosophical approach to addressing harm where the restorative part really is about restoring the relationship between two people. Um, I just, I thought of this the other day. A friend of mine posted on Facebook that her bicycle had been stolen, and it turned out to be a, a kid in the neighborhood. And when they found the bike, the police officer said to the woman, do you want to press charges? And I thought, you know, there should be more than a yes-no answer with that. Absolutely. Because really what is needed is for her to be able to sit down with the person who did the harm, and she's the person who was harmed, and to say, how did that affect her? And... And, you know, how has she felt about it? And then that helps the person who did the harm say, ah, oh, I, I really hadn't thought about that. And, hmm. um, and this is, you know, what I was thinking about. And, and the person who was harmed gets their questions answered, and the person who did the harm has a greater understanding of the other. And that often leads to greater empathy and, and real heartfelt apologies and then a change in behavior going forward. So that's essentially what we're doing in circles in the school. Well, and, and you know, I'm a trainer on human inclusivity, and this folds absolutely into my work because a key uh, pillar of my work is the power of human familiarity of how we get past our differences by getting to know each other. Jenny, um, we're going to need to take a break here, um, but when we come back, we'll talk more about your work at Kids First, but then I want to talk about you, the idealist. Listeners, we've been speaking with Jenny Schultz from Kids First Law Center in Iowa, talking about an incredible program down in Iowa where kids are, are being advocated for and are the centerpiece of uh, attention in terms of how to deal with conflict in their lives. You've been listening to me, Ellie Krug, um, with Ellie 2.0 Radio. When we come back, we'll talk more with Jenny and some other things. Thank you. Hello, this is Ellen Krug from Hidden Edges Radio. When I'm not on the radio, I'm standing in front of audiences training about diversity and inclusion and on how to be welcoming to others who are different from us. More than ever, employers and organizations need professional diversity and inclusion training. I can offer that training through my company, Human Inspiration Works, LLC. I'd love to make your workplace or organization more welcoming. For more information, go to humaninspirationworks.com. Thank you. Branding Electrolysis on Grand Avenue in St. Paul has been a leader in permanent hair removal for people of all skin types and backgrounds for over 30 years, celebrating diversity and priding themselves on finding the right treatment plan for each client's individual needs, regardless of race or gender. Services include electrolysis, body waxing, facials, microneedling, and permanent makeup. Book your 60-minute complimentary consultation, including a 15-minute treatment today, for beautiful, lasting results. Visit BrendingElectrolysis.com. 
Hi, everybody. Make plans to attend the one and only Powderhorn Art Fair on Saturday and Sunday, August 4th and 5th in the heart of South Minneapolis and picture-perfect Powderhorn Park. Experience and purchase original artwork from more than 230 artists. Spend time with your family and friends creating your own work of art at over half a dozen art stations. And don't forget to grab a bite to eat from over 25 different food trucks. So join us on Saturday, August 4th from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m., or Sunday, August 5th, from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. or both. The Powderhorn Art Fair is proudly brought to you by Powderhorn Park Neighborhood Association in collaboration with the Minneapolis Park and Recreation Board with a generous gift from the Metropolitan Regional Art Council. Again, join us for over 230 artists, 25 food trucks, and six arts experiences on August 4th and 5th. So we'll see you there at one of the most local art fairs around. At Pride Institute, being LGBTQ plus is the norm, not the exception. Their highly trained and skilled staff understand your issues and will help you live a happy, healthy life as a proud LGBTQ plus person. They offer you hope to overcome your addiction and live the life you want. Their treatment programs are designed to assist you in developing the knowledge, skills, and attitudes for long-term recovery. Therapy groups include health education, LGBTQ issues, HIV and chronic illness, trauma, grief and loss, transgender support, nicotine recovery, education, and sexual health. Pride Institute offers a residential treatment program, a partial hospitalization program that includes day programming with lodging, and an intensive outpatient program. If you or someone in your life can benefit from guidance and coping skills, life balance, and other tools necessary for long-term recovery, check them out at pride-institute.com or call 800-547-7433 now. With your AM950 weather, I'm Sam Turnberg. Today will be sunny with a high near 84, and tonight mostly clear with a low around 61. Tomorrow will be sunny with a high near 79, Wednesday mostly sunny with a high near 81, and Thursday mostly cloudy with a high near 76. Woodland Stoves and Fireplaces offers great indoor and outdoor stoves and fireplaces. Good for warming yourself by a fire or cooking in a beautiful wood-burning oven. Conveniently located between Minneapolis and St. Paul at 2901 Franklin Avenue East. For more information, visit woodlandstoves.com. How long till my soul gets it right? Can any human being ever reach that kind of light? I call on the rest And we are back. Ellie 2.0 Radio. We've been doing an interview with Jenny Schultz from Kids First Law Center in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Jenny, before uh, we broke, you were talking about all of the projects that Kids First is involved in. And um, before I forget, okay, because I know we've got listeners right now that are wondering, how can I learn more about Kids First and maybe how can I contribute? So give us the website and, and give us a way that listeners can contribute to Kids First. Sure. It's kidsfirstiowa.org, and Iowa is all spelled out, I-O-W-A. And there's a donate button right on the website, so we'd love, we'd love any size gift, really. We receive gifts anywhere from $10 to $10,000 from generous people, so we, we welcome any size gift. And, and um, I've given you gifts every year, although not, near, not on that high end by any stretch, although I would love to be able to, but... So, listeners, um, I do put my uh, money where my mouth is. I have contributed to Kids First. It is an extremely worthy organization. So, Jenny, um, in the time that we have left, I want to talk about you. And I want to talk about this show is about idealism and it's about idealists because I believe we don't talk about idealism nearly enough today. And I believe that if we we do talk about it more and we highlight the work of idealists that the concept and the fever about idealism will spread. You began Kids First in 2005, is that right? Right. So you were the one who came up with the idea, right? Right. And, um, and, but, but, but it didn't begin there because uh, you graduated from law school in 1998 and then you worked for a nonprofit in D.C. and then you worked for Iowa Legal Aid, is that correct? That's right. So you have always had this thing about people who don't have voices. Am I wrong on that? <laughs> I guess so. I don't. I don't. Uh, I don't think of it like that. But um, I guess so. So all right. So tell me, why are you the way you are? What happened in your life? 
what caused you to, you know, get out of law school and forego the big bucks? I mean, going and working for a nonprofit and going working for legal aid is not going was <laughs> not going to um, uh, make your bank account grow. So, what was it? What what is it about Jenny Schultz that caused you to to do what you're doing? I think it's it's all the forces of the people who shape you on your way as you grow up. So I can point to a lot of people in my life, particularly my mom. She was very giving and always, you know, probably once or twice a week when she was making dinner for our family, she would uh, say, okay, you guys start and I'll be back in, you know, 20 minutes. And she would have made a whole other portion for another family that was having a hard time and would deliver that. So she was very much that behind-the-scenes person giving back. Um, so that was that was a lot of it. Um, one time, actually, I worked in a nursing home right out of college, and I said, oh, the food is so terrible, Mom. I wish you could make a home-cooked meal for them sometime. And so we arranged it with the nursing home. Actually, she made dinner for 30 residents. Oh, my God. And it was wonderful, and we had... We served it by candlelight, and my friends came and provided dinner music. And it was really, I, I think back about that. And as an eighteen or nineteen year old, I don't think I appreciated that my mom was fully on board with making a meal for thirty <laughs> people. But um, so certainly, she had a big part in that. Um, and the other thing I always go to is that I I did a stint in a volunteer corps for a year after college, and that was really life changing. And whenever people in the community send me their kids and say, oh, they're interested in law school. I'm always trying to first talk them into a year in a volunteer corps. And so I was in the Lutheran Volunteer Corps. You don't have to be Lutheran to be in it. You don't have to have, um, you don't have to be a Christian or have any particular affiliation with any faith. But um, uh, it was it was great because I lived with other volunteers. I did meaningful work. And it infects you. So you just want to have that high of helping people. And so when I went to law school, that was the, the plan from the beginning is that I would do public interest work. I've never had an interest in, in anything else. Well, okay. So, so you had that kind of foundation and that background. Um, but it's one thing to, to have that background and, 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 and care about people. It's a whole other thing to start a nonprofit from scratch. And, and so, Jenny, I'm going to uh, take you back to 2005 because I was, you know, I was practicing law in Iowa. Of course, it was as a man. We don't need to go down that road. And, um, uh, and I remember you starting this nonprofit, and you had to scrape. I mean, you were out begging, and I think that that would be the right word. <laughs> begging. Yes begging for money. And so what, what is it about you that got you to the point to say, not only am I going to care for humans, but I'm going to go out on a limb and, and start something because I have a vision about helping kids. I mean, did you have some kind of a, you know, event in your life that said, uh, no, I'm, I'm going to take that big risk? Um, was there something, you know, that health condition that you said, I'm, I'm going to go and do the most I can about my life? What was no, it? No, you know, it was, um, you know, I think about the term mission field and, and missionaries. And we think of missionaries as religious people, you know, going to some developing country far away. But I think of your mission as, as, you know, what you want to devote your life to, what kind of legacy you want to leave behind when you're gone. And, you know, the mission field is all around us. And whatever it is that gets under our skin is the, is the thing that's supposed to be our mission. So, you know, when you're like, somebody should do something about that, I think, well, that somebody is you. Because if it really <laughs> bothers you and it, and it eats at you, and um, then that's that's the thing you got to do. So um, I think it's just kind of listening for that, or or kind of feeling that nudge and respecting it. So 
You know, for me, part of it was being young. Uh, I'm 46 now, so what, I was 33 then. And I still young, was naive <laughs> enough to think it would be easy. <laughs> so that was part of it. But I also come from that perspective that, that, um, that people are generous and there's more than enough. And so I knew that people would give to this just like people give to lots of things. And I really don't come at it from this viewpoint of scarcity or fear. I think um, I've seen remarkable ways that people are generous, and, and we see that all around us all the time. So I, I knew that that would happen. So let's, but let's give listeners some perspective. You start in 2005 with you. That's it. You with a vision and um, a plan and starting to beg for money. You now have how many employees with kids. There are 12 of us. 12 of you. And what? And your budget obviously started at zero in 2005. What's your annual budget right now? It's uh, just around $750,000. $750,000, Jenny. That is amazing. Yeah, and that's all, you know, that's the community. That's not me. You know, I, my, um, my first request for money went to all my friends and family. Uh, and I called it a beg letter. In the field, you're supposed to call it an annual appeal, but I truly <laughs> call it a beg letter and saying, you know, hey, I have this idea, and would you give money to it? And it wasn't even a 501c3 nonprofit at that point. So people were just giving out of kindness. And you know, I lived in a starter home. It was an $80,000 house, so it was not in some, you know, fancy neighborhood. I was yep. a single gal, and um, so this was my sole income. And I remember I had sent the letter to everyone I knew. And my neighbors, who I had met once, and that was when they came and trimmed my hedge, probably because I had never trimmed it. It <laughs> looked terrible. So my neighbors came by, and they said, hey, we received this letter from you. And they had the little pledge card in their hand. And I said, oh, yeah, don't feel obligated. I sent it to everybody I've ever met and just wanted to invite people to give, but no obligation. And they said, well, no, we want to give, but we didn't know how to fill it out because we want to give you $50 a week. And there wasn't a spot you know, on the pledge card to give you know, regularly. <laughs> my parents were visiting at the time, and I remember they were like, $50? I could hear them in the background. That's $2,500 a year. <laughs> Just like freaking out about it. And, and these are people who, you know, just blue-collar jobs and, um, you know, both worked. In, uh, one was a welder and one worked in a factory. And, and just that kind of generosity and I've seen that again and again and again. Yep. Um, and that's, that's just super powerful. Well, so. we, well, Jenny, I have a saying that we all have empathetic hearts. We do. I mean, 99% of us, 1% total sociopaths, but the other 99% of us have empathetic hearts. It's just that we're often very afraid um, to exercise those hearts because we're afraid of what we're going to get caught up in or something like that, or it's going to overwhelm us. But when we're given a pathway on how to exercise our empathetic hearts, oh my God, we show up. We do. Yes. And obviously you've done that. Before we go, I want to just ask you about what role does imagination play? Because, you know, I worked in the nonprofit field for five years up here, starting a legal, non legal access nonprofit. One of my observations was the absence of imagination. And it's very clear to me that you, you, you began with an idea about protecting kids, and it has now morphed into a variety of different things. How highly do you value imagination and what would you tell aspiring idealists right now listening to the show about how to use their imagination how to be idealistic and you've got like a minute that's all you have sorry <laughs> <laughs> um gosh i just i just think look at right what's right next to you and what needs doing um you know one of my projects on the side is i pick up litter in the neighborhood and live in kind of a low-income neighborhood and I picked it up one day, and by the next day when I drove down the street, it was full of litter again. And I was like, you know, game on, people. I'm going to keep picking up trash until you stop putting it down. <laughs> so I think just determination, right? Just yep. keep at it. Grit and resiliency, right? I mean, yes. and I think that we have, all of us have more grit and resiliency, but not all of us are Jenny Schultz's. Jenny, um, I've just got to tell you, I am in awe of you. I am. 
And I want you to know that in whatever way that I, idealist Ellie Krug, can help Jenny Schultz, idealist, um, I, I will do that for you. All right? For you and for your organization. Um, thank you. Thank it's an you. honor. Well, thank you for all that you're doing. And thanks for protecting uh, kids down in Iowa. And can you give, give the website one more time for our listeners so they can get a hold of you? Sure. It's kidsfirstiowa.org. Okay. Well, Jenny, um, uh, Jenny Schultz with Kids First Law Center in Iowa, who is doing amazing work protecting children. Thank you so very much for being on LE 2.0 Radio. It's my privilege. Thank you. All right. Listeners, you've been listening to me, Elite Krug, on LE 2.0 Radio, uh, speaking with Jenny Schultz. Um, If you like what you hear, visit my website at elliekrug.com or uh, sign up for my newsletter, The Ripple, which you can do at that website. Or I'd love to hear from you at my my email, lejkrug at gmail.com. When we come back, um, we'll do our last segment. Thanks so very much. Here we are again, and I gotta tell you, Jim, this match has me really concerned. Here we have a powerful heavyweight, a train, weighing in at 6,000 tons, and this hasty lightweight challenger, a car, at just one and a half tons? This does not bode well for the car, or the people in it. It's no contest. Every day, people are injured or killed trying to beat a train at rail crossings. See tracks, think train. At Pride Institute, being LGBTQ plus is the norm, not the exception. Their highly trained and skilled staff understand your issues and will help you live a happy, healthy life as a proud LGBTQ plus person. They offer you hope to overcome your addiction and live the life you want. Their treatment programs are designed to assist you in developing the knowledge, skills, and attitudes for long-term recovery. Therapy groups include health education, LGBTQ issues, HIV and chronic illness, trauma, grief and loss, transgender support, nicotine recovery, education, and sexual health. Pride Institute offers a residential treatment program, a partial hospitalization program that includes day programming with lodging, and an intensive outpatient program. If you or someone in your life can benefit from guidance and coping skills, life balance, and other tools necessary for long-term recovery, check them out at pride-institute.com or call 800-547-7433 now. Summer is the season to clean the easily overlooked areas of your house. Look at your roof. Do you have black streaks, blotches, or algae? Don't wait until you need to replace your roof. You can clean it for much cheaper. What about your siding? Run your finger along the outside of your house, and you can feel the cleaning it needs. For cleaning services, call Blue Sky Services at 651-447-4484. And tell them that you're an AM950 listener to save up to $100 in July only. That's 651-447-4484. Call now to save on July services. Hello, this is Ellen Krug from Hidden Edges Radio. When I'm not on the radio, I'm standing in front of audiences training about diversity and inclusion and on how to be welcoming to others who are different from us. More than ever, employers and organizations need professional diversity and inclusion training. I can offer that training through my company, Human Inspiration Works, LLC. I'd love to make your workplace or organization more welcoming. For more information, go to humaninspirationworks.com. Thank you. Branding Electrolysis on Grand Avenue in St. Paul has been a leader in permanent hair removal for people of all skin types and backgrounds for over 30 years, celebrating diversity and priding themselves on finding the right treatment plan for each client's individual needs, regardless of race or gender. Services include electrolysis, body waxing, facials, microneedling, and permanent makeup. Book your 60-minute complimentary consultation, including a 15-minute treatment today, for beautiful, lasting results. Visit BrendingElectrolysis.com. Back on LE 2.0 Radio. Oh my God, what an interview with Jenny Schultz. You know, um, if you were looking on Facebook Live, you would see that I was starting to tear up as she spoke. I'm sorry. I'm just, I am, when I hear about people like Jenny who just have a vision 
to protect humans, to protect people who have no protection otherwise. And when I hear about what they do, how they go forward, how they work and strive and build to do it as idealists, um, it touches me. Hopefully it touches you. Gosh, hopefully the show touches you. I am so trying to do that because we need to change the world. I'm sorry. It is not working the way it's intended. And people like Jenny Schultz, um, they're helping to make that change happen. Now, in this last segment, my C segment of the show, um, this is where I get to talk a little bit about me, my past, or maybe my present work. Um, and... Um, because the station owner has said, Ellie, we want, we want you to talk about your work. And so um, I'm going to do that. And, um, and this is our theme today, which is about standing up for other humans, humans who don't have a voice. So I'm going to share something with you. Um, 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 many of you know, but not all of you, I'm going to assume, know that early in my legal career, I mean, I am, uh, by training and education, a, a lawyer. But a trial lawyer in particular, a civil trial lawyer. And, um, and I began uh, my legal career in Boston. I went to Boston College Law School, got out of BC, and uh, started working in downtown Boston. When I was a wet-behind-the-ears lawyer, I worked for a trial firm, a well-respected trial firm in downtown Boston, civil trial firm. So I didn't do criminal work, I did civil work. This firm had a young partner, like one of, you know, one of the, the Go Gunners uh, partners. We'll call him Charlie, um, who was um, made partner very, very young. And he was, um, I'd say ruthless, would be really the right word. He knew how to play the political game. He knew do, how to do things. He knew, he knew when, to, um, when to step on other people. And, uh, but he was also liked by clients, and he brought in a lot of money for the firm, and that they made him a partner very early. Well, Charlie um, wanted to impress the federal judges, very much in keeping with his personality. And one of the ways that he, he did that, because he had a lot of litigation, a lot of stuff going on in federal court, one of the ways that he wanted to impress the federal judges was he agreed that the firm I worked for would do pro bono prisoner rights work. Pro bono, that's free legal work. Prisoner rights, that's when, you know, people who are incarcerated, when their rights are violated. So an example would be when somebody is placed in solitary confinement for months or years on end without reason. And the Constitution prohibits cruel and unusual punishment, and there's a mechanism for suing the federal government when prisoner rights are violated. Um, but in reality, even though Charlie wanted the firm to, to do this work, to do pro bono work, uh, for prisoners and to make the firm look good in the eyes of the judges because it was always difficult to find lawyers to do that work. In reality, <clears throat> it was all for show. Uh, Charlie put limits on the amount of time and the amount of effort that the lawyers in the firm could actually spend on behalf of these prisoners. Um, and so one day, I'm fairly new at the firm, I got a file with, I got a, a memo with a file um, about a brand new case, about a prisoner who had been um, arrested for, he was a heroin addict, he had been arrested for a parole violation and, um, and placed in confinement. So they arrested him, took him, to, took him to jail, and he started to go through heroin withdrawal, and they did not give him a doctor. And so he's going through heroin withdrawal. Some people die from heroin withdrawal. And he went through that for several days, violently sick, but the um, federal... Um, uh, confinement uh, folks never called a doctor for him. So that was my case, okay? In the memo, though, I got from Charlie, the memo was, said, do the minimal. By, in other words, don't spend a lot of time on the case. Well, as it turned out, the federal government um, moved to dismiss the lawsuit right after I got it. And that required a lot of work on my part to resist their efforts to dismiss the lawsuit. I was very successful at it. I kept the lawsuit going, but I put a lot of time in it. And one day I had a knock on the door from Charlie and uh, Charlie asking me, um, why did you spend so much time on this file when I told you not to spend time? So that sent a very clear message to me um, that um, I was going to be in trouble if I put more time on the file. So what I did was, you, you need to understand, I, 
I've, I've always been like that. I've always done the right thing, particularly when it comes to protecting other humans. I'm a lawyer. I took an oath, and I'm a big believer in the value of that oath. And so I, what I did is I went off the clock. I did the work. I did all the work that was needed for this, this client, but I didn't put it on my timesheet. So the firm never had any idea of how much time I was spending on the file. One of the other things Charlie had told me was that if the case comes to trial, uh, you need to let me know. And I knew that if I told him about a trial, that he would tell me not to do any work to prepare for the trial. And as it turned out, the case got called for a trial on a Thursday. It was going to go to trial on Monday. It was going to be my very first jury trial. And I did not want, I did not want to be told to dog the case on my very first jury trial. So I didn't tell Charlie I was going to trial. I didn't let Charlie know the case was going to trial until two days later, until the second day of the trial. It's a big firm, many offices, many floors in the, off, in the firm. Um, it's not like Charlie knew what I was doing every day. And so on the second day, I gave him a memo, a note that at the trial had started. I'll be, you know, I'm doing my best. I'll get back to him, let him know how it co comes out. I come back from that very first day of trial, or that second day of trial, and there's a note from Charlie saying, see me in my office. I go down to his office. And this man is extremely angry with me. He shuts the door behind me and starts screaming at me. How, how dare I disregard his instructions? How dare I um, violate his orders? And um, he got to the point of being so angry, he told me not to make another photocopy on the case without his express permission. When you're in the middle of trial, you got to do all kinds of stuff. And making photocopies happens quite a bit. And I just said to him, when he said that to me, I just said, Charlie... Don't you think that's a bit unreasonable and a bit unrealistic? And the man blew up, ordered me out of his office. I went back and tried the case. Um, unfortunately, I lost it. But you know what? The client told me I was the best lawyer it ever had, and he had had a lot of lawyers. Um, several months later, I was told that I had offended Charlie and that I had six months to apologize to him or I needed to leave the firm. In other words, they were giving me six months to leave. And when I heard that, I said to my mentor, I said, you know what? I'm from Iowa. I don't ever apologize for doing the right thing. Six months later, I walked out of that firm with a new job in Iowa. Talk about that some other day. So, there you go. Ellie Krug, idealist, having always tried to do the right thing, to always stand up for other people. A big thanks uh, for this show to our sponsors, Michelle Cooley-Erickson, the Pride Institute, and Brending Electrolysis. I need to thank Hunter Hawes, my producer, and I need to thank you, listeners. We're running out of time. I just want to say thank you for tuning in. Tell others about the show. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye. <laughs>